take your Bibles, turn with me to Mark chapter 9 this morning. Mark chapter 9. The verses for the chapter will, uh, for our reading will not be on the screen to begin with, but um, as we walk back through this text, verse by verse, um, they will come up on the screen. So if you have your Bible or your device, whatever way that you are going to read God's Word this morning, then I invite you to, to join me in Mark chapter 9. While you're turning there, uh, let me say uh, from, from Brandy and myself how grateful we are for the uh, expression of gratitude and love this morning with the uh, Pastor Appreciation Breakfast. We thank you for all the, the gifts uh, that were given to us. Uh, but most of all, we're, you know, um, gifts are great, but the expressions of gratitude, the kind words, the, um, the encouragement that we have received from you um, just goes uh, far, far and above uh, any kind of physical gift or, uh, or monetary gift that we could receive from you. Uh, we are grateful for both, and uh, we, we don't take that lightly. Um, you know, we've been here now 13, uh, 13 years and, and four months. And it has been uh, a great time in our life. Uh, you have made pastoring this church uh, a lot of fun. Um, but most of all, you have more than it just being a, a fun time. And we've laughed a lot and we've had a lot of good times together. But we've also stood over a lot of graves uh, together and we've wept and we've cried. Um, we've had a lot of rejoicing as we have watched people go through the the waters of baptism to profess their faith in Christ. Uh, we have um, done weddings together. We've just had all kind of life experiences, hospitals. And speaking of hospitals, Chuck, if if you and Annette are watching, we, we're just rejoicing with you and all that the Lord has done um, this past week with the surgery and uh, just how everything went better than could be expected, and we just rejoice and, and are grateful for how the Lord answered our prayer that we prayed several weeks ago. Um, but we've just done a lot of life together over the last 13 years and four months, and I wouldn't trade it for anything in the world. And it's always um, just a great encouragement uh, to, to a person's soul when you can do life with other people, and you can grow with other people. Hopefully, you've grown, no matter how long of that time you've been here. Some of you have been here for the entire time. and then, um, uh, But hopefully, ever how much time you've been, you've experienced some type of growth, because I know that in that time, uh, Brandy and myself have, have, have grown a lot. Um, we just haven't grown gray hairs, um, and, and, and I haven't lost more hair than I had when I got here, uh, but we have, um, we have learned a lot um, about our Lord and Savior, and hopefully we have um, grown in that as well. So thank you. Thank you so much. This morning, we, I think it's interesting that we get to Mark chapter 9. Now, trust me, this was not, I'm not smart, smart enough to strategize anything uh, so the fact that we land on this text on Halloween is, uh, to me, uh, quite interesting. And I've just attributed it to the providence of God and not any planning on my part. And by the way, uh, though today is called All Hallows' Eve or Halloween, uh, really for the last 504 years, it's, it's bigger than Halloween. This today is, if you don't know, this is, anybody know what today is? It's Reformation Day. It's the greatest day in, in, in the life of the Protestant church. Because listen, 504 years ago, if a monk with a really funky haircut didn't write uh, a 
document called the 95 Thesis and nail it to the door of the Catholic Church in Wittenberg, Germany, you and I would not be here today. So at one time, this world was one capital C Catholic Church. And now today it is, uh, or I should say, small c Catholic Church. And today it's, it's, uh, it's, it's much bigger than that. Okay, it's much bigger than that. And so Protestantism makes up the vast majority of the Christian faith today. And you and I consider ourselves not to be Baptists as much as we do Protestants. And all of that began... 504 years ago today. It's pretty awesome. And never underestimate what God can do through the life of one person. Right? I mean, because <laughs> uh, I'm, sure uh, I'm sure that Martin Luther had no idea um, 504 years ago, right, that you and I would be sitting here today because of what he did. Now, don't get me wrong, there are, uh, there are many other people who contributed to the Reformation, but uh, probably none more important than, uh, than Martin Luther. All right, so I think I've killed enough time in, in, in an introduction, so hopefully you found yourself there to Mark chapter 9. So let's read this. And when they came to this, and when they came to the disciples, they saw a great crowd around him and scribes arguing with him. And immediately all the crowd, when they saw him, were greatly amazed and ran up to him and greeted him. And he asked them, what are you arguing, arguing about with them? And someone from the crowd answered him, teacher, I brought my son to you for he has a spirit that makes him mute. And whenever it seizes him, it throws him down and he foams and grinds his teeth and becomes rigid. So I asked your disciples to cast it out, and they were not able. And he answered them, O faithless generation, how long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? Bring him to me. And they brought the boy to him, and when the Spirit saw him, speaking of Jesus, immediately it convulsed the boy and he fell on the ground and rolled about, foaming at the mouth. And Jesus asked his father, How long has this been happening to him? And he said, from childhood, and it has often cast him into the fire and into water to destroy him. But if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. And Jesus said to him, if you can, all things are possible for one who believes. Immediately, the father of the child cried out and said, I believe, help my unbelief. And when Jesus saw that a, that a crowd came running together, he rebuked the unclean spirit, saying to it, you mute and deaf spirit, I command you, come out of him, and never enter him again. And after crying out and convulsing him terribly, it came out, and the boy was like a corpse, so that most of them said, he is dead. But Jesus took him by the hand and lifted him up, and he arose. And when he, in, and when he had entered the house, his disciples asked him privately, why could we not cast it out? And he said to them, this kind cannot be driven out but by anything out by anything but prayer so there's the story no better story i guess to talk about than somebody being possessed of a demon on halloween the question we have to ask ourselves when we're reading this text is ultimately what is the point of the text what is Jesus trying to communicate and do in the life of his disciples, and in particular in our life today? And so if I was going to sum, if I was going to sum up uh, this story, this 16-verse story that we just read, I would say this text is tailored to teach you and I that we have been saved not to exercise demons, but to exercise faith. Not to exorcise demons, but to exorcise faith. Now, let's let's have a let's have a little Bible study about 
demon possession. Exactly what the Bible says about demon possession. And in particular, what the Bible says about casting out demons. Mark chapter 3, verse 13 through 15. And he went up on the mountain and called to him those whom he desired, and they came to him. And he appointed twelve whom he also named apostles so that they might be with him and he might send them out, watch, to preach and have authority to cast out demons. So what do we see here? We see that Jesus gives authority to his disciples to exercise or to cast out demons. Look at Mark chapter 6. Verse 7 through 13. And he called the twelve and he began to send them out two by two. And he gave them authority over unclean spirits. And he charged them to take nothing for their journey except a staff, no bread, no bag, no money in their belts, but to wear sandals and to put on two tunics. And he said to them, when you enter a house, stay there until you depart from there. And if any place will not receive you, And they will not listen to you. When you leave, shake off the dust that is on your feet as a testimony against them. So they went out and they proclaimed that people should repent. And they cast out many demons and anointed with oil many who were sick and healed them. One more passage. Mark chapter 16. It's a very controversial passage. Some of you in your Bibles, when you get down to verse 10, you may actually have in the center of that part, or in between verse 9 and 10, you may have a little uh, uh, handwritten, or not handwritten, but a, 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 a note there that says that the remaining verses of chapter 16 were not in earlier manuscripts. Now, These translations, such as the ESV, they are not removing these verses from the Bible. They're just letting us know that these verses, as time has gone on, and as we have found more and more and more manuscripts, and actually more manuscripts that are closer in date to the original writings, we find that these particular verses are not in those original, or or, or those uh, earlier dating manuscripts. Now, your Bible may not have that kind of between the verses. You might have to look, and you might see a little letter or a number uh, by verse 9. That's a footnote, and you look down at the bottom, and it may say it down at the bottom of your Bible. But there there is a lot of controversy concerning these verses. Now, Does that mean that the Bible is not the Word of God, that the Bible is not true, that the Bible is not without error? No, it doesn't mean any of that. What it simply means and what is, if we can have just a a little seminary lesson here, and you you need to know this because this is often what people use to say that the Bible is not true, why the Bible is not trustworthy. The, the Bible has more manuscripts, uh, substantiating all of what it says than any other book of antiquity. Listen, there's no other book that you can be more assured about than the Bible. I mean, we can be more assured that 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 the Bible is what it is than we can any other great book of literature. Okay? Why? Because we have tens of thousands of manuscripts. And what has happened is in uh, the last 100 years, because of archaeological digs, is that we are finding more and more and more manuscripts. I mean, we're not, I mean, it is incredible, the, the, the tens of thousands of manuscripts. But what's happened is we're finding some manuscripts that we know date back to the first century. And, and when I mean first century, that means we're talking about within... Uh, a decade, a decade, a decade or two of the original writings. Now, do we have any of the actual originals? No, we have copies. Okay, 
Nobody's ever going to say, oh, we got the original, you know, uh, uh, gospel of Matthew that Matthew wrote. No, they make copies. Why? Because parchment wears out, fades, deteriorates over time. But what we have is we have some copies that could be traced back to within 20 years of the original. And what we find is in some of these later copies or earlier copies, we find that these verses just aren't simply in, the, uh, in, in those manuscripts. So basically what uh, uh, Bible publishers are doing now, they're just either making a footnote or they put that little uh, notation in between verse 9 and 10 that these following verses uh, were not in some of the earlier manuscripts. So how did they end up in the Bible? Well, more than, I mean, look, what, what we're about to see here is nothing that the Bible doesn't teach. Okay, um, but it was probably a scribe who uh, added to um, the the ending of the book. Because look, I wish we had time to go into this, but if you just go and you read verse nine, well, I tell you what, let me just do it for you real quick. Um, and this is how it would end, right? Let's, so listen to us. Actually, verse eight. And they went out and fled from the tomb, for trembling and astonishment had seized them, and they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. <laughs> Logically, think about that. That's not really the way you want to end a book, right? They're scared and afraid, and they fled. It's not really how you want Mark to end. Why? Because Matthew doesn't end that way. Luke doesn't end that way. John doesn't end that way. And so the consensus is probably some scribe came along and said, that's a terrible way to end a book. And so basically what they did is they, they piecemealed other parts of the Bible in. The, I mean, because what we're about to read, you're going to say, oh yeah, I remember Matthew said that. Or I remember Luke said that to, to kind of create this ending. But, what it, but what's happened is, is that some people have taken this ending and they have developed a theology out of it that really is not a robust theology that the Bible teaches. And that's, that's why it needs to be footnoted the way it is. So let's look at these verses together. We're going to start in verse 14. Afterward, he appeared to the eleven themselves as they were reclining at the table, and he rebuked them for their unbelief and hardness of heart, because they had not believed those who saw him after he had risen. And he said to them, now see if that doesn't sound familiar. Go into all the world and proclaim the gospel to the whole creation. Sound familiar, right? Matthew 28 says that. Luke says that. Whoever believes and is baptized will be saved, and whoever does not believe will be condemned. And these signs, and here's, here's, here's where people take these next few verses, and they've developed a whole theology that um, the Bible doesn't teach in the robust way that people uh, will teach it in our day. These signs will accompany those who believe in my name. They will cast out demons. They will speak in new tongues. They will pick up serpents uh, with their hands. And if they drink any deadly poison, it will not hurt them. They will lay hands on the sick and they will recover. Uh, that's where snake handling churches uh, develop their theology from, is right here from these verses. So then the Lord Jesus, after he had spoken to them, was taken up into heaven and sat down at the right hand of God. Um, so let's, let, let me answer a couple of questions very quickly. Are people today still possessed by demons? Yes. Are we called to a ministry of exorcism? No. Not a ministry but we are called to moments of exorcism. Many of you will never run across a demon-possessed person, and you should thank God for that. But is there a possibility? Is there a moment in time in your life where you might meet someone possessed by a demon? Absolutely. Um, in my life, only happened twice. I'm not going to go into any details about it, uh, but I have encountered two people in my lifetime, one in the United States and one not in the United States, that there was uh, no doubt this person had been uh, taken over by uh, uh, a demon. 
But we're not called to an ongoing ministry of exorcism. There are only two occasions of exorcism after Jesus goes back to heaven. Acts chapter 8 and Acts chapter 16 are the only two accounts of any kind of exorcism happening after Jesus goes back to heaven. Now Martin Luther, who I referred to earlier, wrote a song called A Mighty Fortress Is Our God. And uh, in this song, he has a line, This world with devil fields threatens to undo us. This world, listen, it is filled with demonic spirits. But not everyone is filled with a demonic spirit. Some people are possessed by a a demon, but the vast majority are only the possession of Satan. Did you get that? Very few people are what we would call possessed by a demon. But listen, everyone that is not a Christian is a possession of Satan. You don't believe that? Let me just read the Bible to you. And you were dead in trespasses and sin, in which you, in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the carrying out of our, uh, once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body, and the mind, and look, and were by children. By nature, children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. Listen. There are only two kinds of people in the world. Children of light, and children of darkness. Not everybody, you know, we, we, we've got this lovely phrase we love to throw around. That everybody is a child of God? No, they're not. Everybody is a creation of God, but not everybody's a child of God. Only those who have been born again get the, uh, uh, the benefit of being called the child of God. But we all, all are creations of God. Those who are possessions of Christ are those who are the possessions of the devil. That's, that's the only two kinds of people in the world. The focus of our text is not on exorcism of demons, but on the exercise of faith. Our world doesn't need a church who sees Satan in everything or sees Satan in nothing. It needs a church who understands this world is full of sinners and evil spirits. And a church who knows truly where her battle lies. Look at what Paul says. He says, we don't wrestle against what? Flesh and blood. What is that? We don't, we don't wrestle against each other, but against the rulers and powers and against authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Our battle is not against each other. We need to learn that today. You don't believe that this world is not permeated with evil? Look at all the fighting that's going on. In particular, fighting among people that call themselves Christians. Satan is a wily enemy. He is very smart. He is very subtle. And he's got the church arguing at each other rather than confronting evil. He's got us warring against flesh and blood and not warring against where the true war is to be fought, which is in the spiritual realm. Let's walk through this text real quick together. Mark 9, 14. And when they came to the disciples, they saw a great crowd around him and scribes arguing with them. 
Where was Jesus coming from? Up on the mountain. Remember that last week? He's up on the mountain meeting with God. You remember the cloud came. God spoke. Jesus was transfigured. Moses and Elijah showed up, right? Then they come down the mountain, right? Jesus, Peter, James, and John. And what do they find? They find the other nine disciples arguing with the religious. Very similar to what happened to Moses when Moses went up on the mountain and met with Jesus. What did he come down to? He came down to find God's people arguing then. History repeats itself. Why? Because faithlessness is not creative. It is a repeat of what has been done in the past. Can I, can I just throw something out at you? Nothing good has ever come from an argument. Y'all believe that? Nothing good ever comes from an argument. Nobody ever got into heaven because you argued them into heaven. Nobody believed what you believe because you, your argument was better than theirs. Mark 9, 15, and immediately all the crowd, when they saw him, were greatly amazed and ran up to him and greeted him. I love this word, greatly amazed. And I'm not picking on teenage girls this morning, so teenage girls, please don't be offended at this. But it's the only way I know how to describe what this word means in Greek, greatly amazed. It, it, it would, in our day, would be the actions of teenage girls at a boy band concert. Or how about the way some of you women acted back in the 60s when the Beatles showed up? Or Elvis shook his hips in the 50s? I'm going to go on back and get a few more of y'all on that back row back there. And y'all fainting and passing out and having cold chills go up your spine. That's what, that's what is meant by greatly amazed. They were greatly amazed and ran up to him and greeted him. Why? The world needs Jesus, for it is full of evils that need to be remedied. The world is full of evil. And only Jesus can be the remedy to the problem of evil in the world. What about verse 16? And he asked them, what are you arguing about with them? Their argument centered on the legitimacy of their discipleship. It was believed in Jesus' day that true disciples replicated their teacher's teaching. <clears throat> Imagine if that's the standard we were held to today. Well, how do we know that you're a disciple? We don't ever see you do anything that Jesus does. The criteria hasn't changed. To be a follower of Jesus is to follow in the footsteps of Jesus. It is to do those acts that Christ has called us to do. To fulfill the first and greatest commandment, to love our God, but also to love our neighbor as ourself. So the argument is about whether these guys are really legitimate or not. Now look at verse 17 and 18. And someone from the crowd answered him and said, Teacher, I brought my son to you, right? But guess what? Jesus isn't there. Why? Because he's up on the mountain. For he has a spirit that makes him mute. And whenever it seizes him, it throws him down and he foams and he grinds his teeth. And becomes rigid. So I ask your disciples to cast it out, and they were not able. The boy's need is not to be healed physically. He doesn't have a physical ailment. He's not sick. He's possessed by a spirit. Okay, he doesn't have epilepsy like you might read in some commentators. This, this is something that is not a neurological issue. This is something that is strictly a spiritual issue issue. Their inability to cast out the demon called into question their claim as well as Christ. Because remember what we read earlier? 
back in Mark chapter 3 and Mark chapter 6, Jesus had given them the authority to cast out demons, and they have already done that. So the question begs to be asked, why can't they do it now? And that's what drives us to the point of the passage. Why can they not do now what they have done in the past? Their failure, listen, their failure in this duty was a failure of faith. It was a failure of faith. They had begun to trust their own abilities rather than God's. And you say, where do you get that? Look at the last four words that's on the screen. They were not able, and you got that right, and neither are you. They were not trusting in in the authority that Christ had given them. They were trusting in their own ability, in their own authority. There's a powerful reminder in this text as well, something we don't need to just pass over and forget about. The forces of Satan, we learn something about Satan here and his demons, and that is the forces of Satan seek to ruin those that they rule. Listen, we live in a world that's trying to do away with any and every thought that evil exists. And, 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 well, let me, let me rephrase that. They may not be able to try to do away with the thought that, that there is no evil, but what they're trying to do is, is to, is to shrink evil down to a very small category because you got people like Hitler and other people who have done horrible things throughout history, uh, Saddam Hussein or, or Osama bin Laden. And so what we've done is we've kind of shrunk evil down to a small category And we said, that's about all that evil is. And yet the Bible has this big, broad picture of what evil is and what evil does. And if we look and listen, anything in this world that seeks to destroy human beings is evil. That's how you define it. It's evil. Look at verse 19. And he answered them and said, O faithless generation, how long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? Bring him to me. Now remember the context. The context, as we said a couple of weeks ago, goes all the way back to chapter 8. Remember, Jesus is shifting in his, uh, he's shifting the focus of his ministry from the crowd, ministering to the crowd, to Jesus is now shrinking the ministry down to the core, to these 12 men that he calls his disciples. Why? Because he is preparing them for his departure. And listen, and as we said about the blind man that Jesus touched twice in order for him to be healed, is that Jesus needs to touch these men many more times before he leaves. Why? Because look what he says. I'm about to leave and you still lack faith. You still lack faith. The Lord is not perplexed by their actions, but He's not pleased by their actions. He uses their failure as a means of further discipleship. Listen, He knows our fragility. He knows our weakness. And and, and He is not giving up on them, but He is seeking in this manner to strengthen them. Why? Because what He's about to do is... There's really two, there's really two kinds of faith in this story. There's the, there is the, the faith that fails. That's the disciples. But then there's this faith that is feeble that God is able to, to use. Jesus' words point to the urgency of the moment. How long am I? And so Jesus uses this man because he wants to show his disciples this is the faith that you must have. Look what he says. And they brought the boy to him. And when the spirit saw him, immediately it convulsed the boy and he fell to the ground. And he rolled about, foaming at the mouth. And Jesus asked his father, how long has this been happening to him? And he said, from childhood. And it has often cast him into fire because in those days, 
there were, you know, fires everywhere. That's how people cooked, on open fires. Or, or into the water to destroy them. There were wells. You know, they just didn't go and flip a, you know, uh, flip the arm up and water come out of the spigot. And so there were wells everywhere. So this boy, listen, imagine being this daddy for a second. Imagine spending the majority of your life pulling your son from fires and pulling him out of wells. You know, about 30 years ago, the world came to a screeching halt in Midland, Texas, didn't it? When a little girl fell down into a well, that put CNN on the map, as a matter of fact. And they spent hours, days covering, trying to, I think it was 50-something hours before they fished that little girl out of that well and how they had to go down on the other side and come in and try to extract her out. But they, they eventually did that. But imagine a daddy who his whole life has been spent watching an evil spirit throw his son into fires and they're everywhere or throw his son into wells that are everywhere. What a horrible existence. And look what he says. He says, but if you can do anything, have compassion, splagnizomai, that comes from the guts. If, if there's anything, anything of compassion deep down inside of you, Jesus, help us. Help us. The presence of Jesus often brings conflict before it brings peace. Notice when, when they started bringing a little boy, the demons started freaking out. And don't miss again, evil's... What evil is trying to do, it's trying to destroy him. That word destroy means to abolish, to put to an end, to ruin entirely. The father knows that Jesus can deliver him. What did he say earlier? He said, teacher, I brought my son to you, right? But you weren't here. So he's got faith, he's got belief. He said, I asked your disciples to cast it out, but they were unable to. Folks, church, do you get what's going on here? This man had enough faith to believe that Jesus could deliver his son, but after he had had some dealings with the disciples, he wasn't for sure if Jesus could do anything. How many people in our world believe that, that, that Jesus is an impotent God because they watch and they look at an impotent church. And I want to tell you something. When Jesus is not around, while he was up on the mountain, those other nine were there, when Jesus is not present, guess what? There is no power. The Father's faith had become feeble because of the disciples' failure. He came believing Jesus could deliver to this statement. If you possess any ability to help, be compassionate and help us. Look what Jesus said in verse 23 and 24. And Jesus said to him, it ain't, it ain't if I can. I, I, listen, I'm not the problem. Jesus said, if you can... All things are possible for who, for all things are possible for one who believes. Again, the point of this text is all about the exercise of faith. Here's here it is. Watch, highlight this, underline this, commit this to memory. Immediately, the father of the of the child cried out, "I believe! Help!" My unbelief. Look at that. He says, I do believe. But I need your help. Because my belief is so weak and feeble. Do you know what the word unbelief means there? It literally, if, if you transliterated that word out, which means if you wrote it out exactly as it means, or, I mean, the, not unbelief, but the word help, it literally could read this way. I believe, run to my unbelief, Jesus. It's a pretty good prayer, isn't it? Lord, I believe, but run to my unbelief. Jesus says, I'm not the issue. 
And the father cries out. Listen, faith in its most basic sense is simply the reliance placed by one person in or on another. The reliance of one person in the power and the faithfulness and the truthfulness of another. You can make a statement of fact to me about something I could not otherwise know. And faith is that state of mind in me that accepts your statement as true. So true that I am willing to base my behavior on it. So let me give it to, let me give you an expression of faith. An expression of faith is the doctor comes in and he says, Hey, you've got this disease, and if you don't do X, Y, and Z, you'll die. And you walk out of that room and you live the rest of your life based on X, Y, and Z. Why? Because by faith, you believe that what that doctor said to you was absolutely true. And it changed your behavior. But if you, if you can spare me just a, a, a few, probably about two to three minutes of reading to you. I came across this years ago. And it's one of the most helpful three or four paragraphs that I've ever heard on faith. And I think it's just best that I read it to you because I don't think it can be said any better. Faith is not the cultivation of an optimistic outlook on life with a kind of spirituality attached to it. A holy hoping for the best. Faith is the confidence assurance in events not yet seen. Faith is not a mindless stab in the dark. It's not the crossing of the fingers and hoping for the best. It is not a leap into apparent nothingness. It is a word that speaks of reasoned, careful, deliberate, intentional thought. Think about Indiana Jones when uh, um, Sean Connery was with him in the in the third installment of Indiana Jones. You remember he his dad had taken this these meticulous notes about how to how to get to the cup of Christ, and you had these challenges that you had to meet. And so he would read the book, and the book would tell him what the challenge was, and all he had to do was follow the challenge to, to succeed and not be killed by the challenge. And he comes to that fourth and final challenge, and, and it says at the lion's head, you've got to take the leap of faith. But it's really not a leap of faith, right? Because the, the, the book is telling him that though you can't see that there's a literal bridge suspended between where you are and where the cup is, Though you can't see it, it doesn't mean that it's not there. What you have to do is not take a blind leap into nothing, but you have to take a step into reality. That's one of the best pictures of faith. Why? Because though we may not see it, it does not mean that it's not real. And what, what I mean, you remember... Indiana puts his foot out and he holds it there for a second and then he lands and all of a sudden he realizes it really is there, just like the book said. That's what we're talking about. When we talk about that it is a word that speaks of reason, careful, deliberate, intentional thought. Thought upon, upon what? God and His promises. If you are absolutely gripped by the coming realities that have been promised to you by God, then how you live your life in the present will be radically different than if you did not possess that certainty. This is what faith is, my friends. Positive certainty expressed in action. Authentic faith is not... Listen, this is the best line. Authentic faith is not merely believing in God, it is believing God. Y'all want to quit right there and go home and chew on that one for a while? Authentic faith, real faith, the faith that these men should have had is, is, is 
It is not just believing in God. Why? Because the disciples believed in God, and this man came to a point where he was believing in God. If you can, if you will, and Jesus says, that's not the issue. The issue is, are you going to believe in me, or are you going to believe me? And then what does he say? I believe, help my unbelief. I, I got to move past believing in you to believing you. Taking God at His word, living in obedience to His revelation, whatever the cost. Because you know that deep down in your bones that God will always do what He says. That His speaking is His doing. It is, it is an abiding assurance in God and His promises that animates you to persevere in your obedience to Him. Now listen, do you wish to be a more consistently obedient, steadily persevering Christian? Do, do you not want to be like the disciples and be more like this man? A stronger Christian? A more con- con- courageous Christian? A more outspoken Christian? Then you need to strengthen your faith. Your faith instinctively strengthens in direct proportion to the expansion of the object of your faith. You expand your understanding of the object of your faith, and your faith itself will obediently follow. The object of your faith, if indeed you are a Christian, is Jesus Christ and all the promises. Is your faith weak? It is owing to the fact that you don't know the object of your faith well enough. But when Jesus Christ becomes progressively bigger, or better yet, your understanding of who He is progressively conforms to reality, your faith will become increasingly stronger. But how does that happen? By immersing yourself in the faith-arousing Word of God. Read of Jesus Christ. The same powerful Word that long ago brought the universe to life is the same Word that can bring you to life and furnish you with a faith that is truly and authentically Christian. Isaac Watts, one of our great hymn writers, this is what he said on his deathbed concerning the promises of God. He said, I believe them enough to venture an eternity on them. I used to say faith is like this. If the Bible told you that you could swing over hell on a rotten corn stalk, and not fall into the pit of hell? Then faith says, where's the rotten corn stalk? Charles Blunden, in 1859, stretched a guy wire from one side of Niagara Falls on the, on the American side to the other side of Niagara Falls on the Canadian side. And Blunden was a tightrope walker, okay? He was incredible at what he did. And he would walk across day after day after day across the expanse of, the, uh, of Niagara Falls. And he would do, he would do audacious stuff. Like he, he went out to the middle of it. He sat down on the rope. He had a rope in his back pocket. He pulled it out. The Maid of the Mist, y'all familiar with the Maid of the Mist? It's a boat that'll take you right up close to the falls. The Maid of the Mist was coming by. He let down a rope. They tied a bottle of, she- uh, a bottle of wine to the rope and a glass. He pulled it up. He popped the, the, the bottle of wine open. He drank the entire bottle. He got back up. He walked to the other side. One day he said, you know what? I, I can cook out over the expanse. He, he put a stove on his back and he walked out to the middle of it. And he cooked a meal and ate it there right over Niagara Falls on a guy wire. He did all kinds. I mean, just look it up. This is not made up. This, is, this comes straight from historical record, his own autobiography that he wrote. This is all documented. There's, there's even pictures that have been taken of Charles Blunden, B-L-O-N-D-I. But what was amazing was, and I often use Blunden as a great expression of faith, is that one day uh, uh, Blunden took a wheelbarrow 
And, and he pushed the wheelbarrow to the other side, and he pushed it back. And the crowds cheered, and everybody was excited. It was about 25,000 people there that particular day. Then he loaded it up with some, with some brick, I mean some uh, a cinder block, and he pushed it over to the other side. And everybody cheered, and he turned around, and he pushed it back to the other side. And all day long, he kept adding different weights and different types of materials into a wheelbarrow. And he'd go to one side, and he'd go to the other. Go to one side, and go to the other. And people just would just, I mean, they were just blown away at how great this 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 Charles Blunden man was. And then, uh, as the day was winding down, Blunden dumped the contents of the wheelbarrow out on the ground, and he looked to the crowd on the American side, and he said, is anybody willing to get in the wheelbarrow and then let me push them to the other side? He found not one volunteer. Why? Because people believed in Charles Blunden, but they didn't believe Charles Blunden. That's the difference between believing in and believing. Listen, if you want to know what faith is, Faith, listen, these people knew that that man could get them to the other side. None of them had the faith to get in. And listen, we can stand back and we can read our Bible all day and we can see everything great that God did and we can even read biographies of great saints and we can see how God, even since the Bible, since the, the Bible uh, stopped being written, we can see that God has not changed in His character, in His nature, in His workings, since the, since, since the conclusion of Scripture. And yet, he says to every one of us who claim him, as Christ, claim him as Savior, he says, look, it's not enough to believe in me. You must believe me. Get in the wheelbarrow. Get in the wheelbarrow. Blunden thought, well, Americans are skeptical individuals anyway. I'll go over and visit the Canadians and see if I might can find a Canadian that'll get in the wheelbarrow. He goes to the Canadian side... And again, same response. No one will get in the wheelbarrow. And folks, this is the crisis of faith in our day. Many of us have enough faith in Jesus to get to heaven. But many of us are missing out on the great blessings of our faith because we failed yet to fully put ourselves in the wheelbarrow. If you can trust Jesus for your salvation, then you can trust him with everything else in your life. That's the point of this text. It's not about exercising demons. It's about the exercise of faith. Why? Because Jesus is going to leave these men. And listen, if they are struggling now, how much greater would the struggle be when he's gone? Let me read these last few verses. And when they saw, and when Jesus saw the crowd running together, he rebuked the unclean spirit and saying, you mute this spirit. I command you to come out of him and never enter him again. And after crying out and convulsing him terribly, he came out and the boy was like a corpse so that most thought he was dead. Jesus took him by the hand and lifted him up and he arose. Now here's what I want you to see. And when he entered the house, his disciples asked him privately, why could we not cast this out? And he said to them, this kind cannot be driven out by anything but prayer. What, what's the point? The point of it is that faith and prayer go together. Prayer is the exercise of faith. Why couldn't they cast the demon out? Had they lost the authority? No. But they had lost the exercise of the authority because they had quit exercising their faith. A failure to pray dooms our lives. Their failure to pray was a failure of faith. Christians must live by faith. Faith is the key to victory. Failure to pray is a declaration of self-reliance. Praying first is a declaration of spirit dependence. How easy is it for our faith to fail? How easy is it for our faith to fail? You know how easy it is? Let Jesus get in our sight and our failure will follow. Listen, take your eyes off Jesus right now and you'll fall. You'll fail. That's all it takes. 
Put your eyes off the object of faith and your faith will fail. When Jesus said this kind, I believe he is speaking of more than demon possession, but the permeation of evil's presence. When people of faith live out their faith, the presence of evil will manifest itself in conflict. When the people of God start living like the people of God, we may not meet demon-possessed people, but trust me, we will meet the enemy. (laughs) The work of Satan and demons is evidence. People are destroying themselves as a result of indwelling sin and demonic activity. Our ministry is the ministry of Christ's righteousness. And as we minister His righteousness, we might find ourselves momentarily participating in the ministry of exorcism. Prayer is a wartime walkie-talkie, not a domestic intercom to ring up the butler to change the thermostat. It's a wartime walkie-talkie to call in firepower because the enemy is greater than we are. If you try to turn this into a domestic intercom to bring, an, to bring you another pillow, it malfunctions. And you wonder why? It's not made to be an intercom. It's made to be a wartime walkie-talkie. Is it me, or does it seem to anybody else that people are being destroyed in unprecedented ways today? Does it seem to be just a a tick worse than it's ever been? Suicides, overdoses, on and on and on and on it goes. Murders, mass murders. I mean, does anybody feel like evil has ticked up a notch or two? And where's the church? Arguing about frivolous stuff. You know how we influence this world? We don't do it on Capitol Hill. We don't do it in in meetings of powerful people. We do it on our knees at the throne of grace, asking the God of the universe to empower us to walk in a world that's filled with devils and give us the the faith and the confidence to preach a message of, of His righteousness so that people who are being destroyed by the devil could be delivered. But we'd rather argue with people than pray. And no wonder people question the power of our Savior. Let's pray. Father in heaven, in a world filled with devils, in a world filled with sin, in a world that seems to be imploding, it's it's just like somebody's walked into a room and pushed the self-destruct button And everything around us is just imploding. Never before have we seen so many ways of people self-destructing. And we know it is because we are born sinners. And therefore we are bent towards self-destruction. But we also know that it is because in this world evil runs rampant. And though it may not, and though we, though it may not possess people, these people are possessions of evil. And you have saved us out of darkness into your marvelous light to give us a message of hope, a message of deliverance, a message of freedom, a message of salvation in this world. And as we walk into this world and we take your presence with us, not because we're special, but simply because we've made the commitment and we have taken the act of faith and we've gone on our knees in prayer and your presence goes with us, that there is often first conflict before there is peace. 
But you came to give peace. You came to give liberty and freedom and salvation. And you said, how beautiful are the feet of those that bring good news. And we are those people. So, Father, this morning, stir us afresh and anew to be people who just simply don't believe in you, but we believe you. And we have leveraged everything on you. We have gotten in our wheelbarrow. And we have said, Lord, I'm all yours. I've got nowhere else to go. I'm putting everything on you. Not in blind faith, but faith rooted in evidence. Faith rooted in the Word of God. Use me in this world to be an instrument of salvation in Christ's name. Amen. Let's stand. Let's sing one more song together this morning.